Hello, and welcome to Inner Journey Podcast. I'm Dawn, and today I'm starting off with a story. There was once a rancher who woke up one morning and discovered that a beautiful but very wild horse had come to his ranch overnight. Greeting him at the fence was his neighbor, who immediately commented on the rancher's good fortune. Wow, you got yourself a Mustang, don't you? That is so good. What a lucky man you are. The rancher replied, Good? Bad? Who's to say? We'll see, won't we? The next week, as the rancher's son was trying to tame the wild horse, the horse bucked and came down right on his right foot, broke it instantly, compound fracture, that took him off his feet for a while. As the rancher shared the news with his neighbor friend, his neighbor said, Oh, how terrible! What bad news! I sure am sorry, friend. To which the rancher replied, Well, I suppose we'll see. Huh? Good? Bad? Who's to say? Later in the season, when war broke out, some recruiters for the army came to the ranch, asking to see the rancher's son, for now he was of age to serve. When they saw he was laid up with a broken foot, they left without the son having to go to war. The neighbor watched the recruiters leave and said, Wow, not many soldiers been coming home safe from that war. It sure is a good thing your son's laid up like he is. And the rancher said, once again, maybe say it with me, Good, bad, who's to say? So, for you listening, today's episode is the third in a series of nine episodes dedicated to language. We're continuing, as we always do, to look into the roots of words and word origins, and in addition to that, we're working to unveil some of the limitations of language, and specific to today's episode, we're asking the question, How does language steer our experience as humans, and how do our experiences shape or stunt our ability to put words to them? My guest later is Dr. Nicole Helverson, who is Doctor of Psychology, and I'm really looking forward to talking with her and asking her some of these questions. But for now, I want to talk about dualities, you know, like hot, cold, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, to name a few mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita from the early age of yoga. In yoga philosophy, the naming of those dualities happens in what is called Manamaya Kosha, or the sheath of mind, coming from information fed to it by the senses and sorted into categories of like and dislike, or in modern terms, oh, or ew, Manamaya Kosha is formed. Besides judging, this sheath of mind can be skillful in planning and problem solving, but has a hard time with holding two or more concepts at once without floating for or against them, or letting them simply be revealed over time. It's the mental sheath that is responsible for the emotional valencing I started to talk about in the last episode. Valencing, again, 
is giving positive or negative charge to the emotions. I'm curious how this valencing limits our ability to put language to our emotions, and where did this valencing come from anyway? Of course, I can only speak about where it came from in the U.S. and from my limited perspective or curiosity. First, though, I want to recap. I mentioned in the last episode that according to social science researcher and empath pioneer Carla McLaren, we have about 17 different and unique emotions, and these emotions almost never exist on their own but rather their nature is to rise up in groups or pairs. Yet, in the English lexicon, we have only three words to describe the rising of emotions in this way. Those words, again, are nostalgia, bittersweet, and gluttonous. If you want to check out the last episode for more review, it's entitled, What's the Word? For now, I'll expand on the concept of emotional valencing and how certain emotions are put into the good category and some are put into the bad category. Like fear, definitely put into the bad category. To the point that it's ruled out altogether in the bumper sticker, no fear, or in song lines like, fear is the mind killer, jeez. Well, joy, of course, is put into the good category. Anger, bad category. Most spiritual and religious systems actively vote against it altogether, and it's treated as a hindrance to spiritual growth. While happiness is put into the very good category, even to the extent that we are fed the spiritual lie that it is, in some total, the goal of life. In American subcultures, these value judgments that form categories that these emotions are going in, it shifts around a bit. For example, contentment is considered very good in yogic circles, but bad in the business world. Excitement, very good in the Pentecostal church, but in Zen Buddhism, you might get a look like, calm the F down already. Confusion, on the other hand, in Zen Buddhism, perfect. You are ready for nothing, i.e. enlightenment. Confusion in Catholicism or New Age movement circles, very bad. You don't have enough faith or you have the wrong crystals. Doubt in Catholicism, potentially heretical. Suicidal urge, oh, we don't talk about that. Uh, who's we? Um, all of us? We do. Um, you in the back? Who's we? I'll tell you behind closed doors. Okay, so I'll pause there to say this. That valencing emotions becomes stigmatizing emotions. And stigmas are always hard to talk about. I was asked once why I talk mostly about the quote, negative emotions, to which I can reply here, that as long as certain emotions are considered negative and not carriers of vital information, I'll continue to do my job as a healer and talk about them. 
And I don't mean name them and never look back again, as has become practice as a misunderstanding of mindfulness. And I certainly don't mean transcend them, as that word transcend is the word of the day. Coming from Latin, transcendare, which means to climb over. When I saw that meaning, it occurred to me that maybe emotional valencing is a byproduct of patriarchy and a country that was built by climbing over the backs of the poor, women, and people of color. It makes sense to me then that the dominant culture as ruled by patriarchy and white supremacy would be dependent upon stealing children and taking away their mother tongue as was the case in the history of Native Americans in this country. If matriarchal languages are forbidden, it would be no wonder we would struggle with a more mutable and expressive relationship to emotions. I recently read this quote by Glennon Doyle about transcendence, and it put into words what I've thought for years. She says, I'm curious about people who have found a way to transcend the world's collective pain, and their own personal suffering. But I respect people who don't try to escape permanently, who run toward the pain, who allow themselves to suffer with others, to become brokenhearted. I respect people who, enlightened or not, roll up their sleeves and give up their comfortable lives for suffering people, or who don't do any of those things but pay close enough attention to know and admit and care that life can be brutal, who understand that their comfortable reality is not enjoyed by all. Which brings me to the emotion of joy. According to Carla McLaren, when joy arises naturally, it often does so after you've come to the end of a long and arduous path. For instance, you often have to travel a long way to get to your favorite natural setting, just as you often have to struggle through painful relationships before you find your life's true companion. For this reason, joy and contentment are more connected to each other than to happiness, because both joy and contentment, when they're healthy, arise in response to honest work and real triumphs whereas happiness usually arises to give you a quick and rejuvenating intermission from all the work you need to do before you can truly feel contentment or joy. This special relationship between joy and hard work is not universally understood because most people are surprised by joy and see it as a magical gift from the cosmos rather than a natural human emotion. But joy isn't magical. It's an emotion, and it has specific purpose. Joy ebbs and flows reliably, not only in response to hard work and contentment, but also to an emotion that may surprise you. Joy often follows or travels alongside of grief, which may seem puzzling if you don't understand the opportunity for communion that lives inside both joy and grief. These two emotions are deeply interconnected because if you enter into the beautiful work that awaits you in the deep river of grief, you will become one with the continuum of life, with the birth and deaths of 
all souls. That's communion, which places you immediately into the territory of joy. While you're in the river performing your sacred grief work, and after you come up and out of the water to rejoin everyday life again. Whole people understand that joy is not a goal in and of itself, but that joy arises of its own accord in a life that's resourced with honest hardships, triumphs, ordeals, loss, hard work, love, laughter, grief, and wholeness. And I'd say that closer to the self than the sheath of mind is the sheath of intuition. In yoga, it's called Vijnanamaya Kosha. And here is where three qualities in particular dwell. One is the ability to hold more than one feeling or thought at once in discernment rather than duality-based preference. Two the emotions, and the information they provide. Three, stored wisdom gained from intention, experience, and reflection. This next poem is called On Joy and Sorrow, and it's by the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow and others say nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. Well, it's that time. I'm thrilled to have a guest again, especially Dr. Helverson. Let's give her a call. Hello. Hey, friend. Hi, how are you? Good. I I said, I'm going to call Dr. Helverson. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> do you have any friends who just call you Doc? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. If I was... Oh my God. 
If I was a doctor, I would make people call me doc. <laughs> First year after I graduated, I was very much like, yes, call me doctor. And then I kind of mellowed out a little bit on it. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, all that schooling, it has to count for something. Yeah, beyond the student loans, yes, it has to count for something. Maybe, just maybe, COVID-19 will make student loans null and void. I think I that's a possibility. Open. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a possibility. Anyway, I have you here, and before we get into our topic, I wanted to play a word game, because after all, these episodes... Nine of them, in fact, are dedicated to language. So, are you up for it? I am up for it. <laughs> okay. The word game is one that I literally just made up. And <laughs> you have to... Um, I'm going to give two words and you... And they... Just a heads up. They might not always be in English. But you have to say which is the real word. And sometimes there might be a trick. All right. Okay. So the first ones <laughs> are <laughs> infarction or fart son. <laughs> I'm going to go with option A. <laughs> correct. That's correct. You, you are good. You, you've played this game before? No, I have not. All right. Well, okay. The next one is inquedibile. Or Michael Bublé. Uh, Michael Bublé. <laughs> well, I guess technically that's a name, but. Correct me up, sorry. Incredibile, I learned when I was in Italy. That just means incredible. And then. Yeah, it is lovely. It's fun to say, too. Incredibile. Then, okay, last one before the bonus round is, okay, stymie or blimey? Blimey. <laughs> correct, as well as stymie. What? Both of them are correct. It was a trick. Yeah. Okay, bonus round. Which one of these words means metal mercury? Is it quicksilver or quacksalver? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) But quacksalver is also a word. It means a charlatan who boasts about themselves. You're not a quacksalver at all. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's why you're here because you're not a quacksalver. And we can actually get down and have a real conversation. (laughs) So. You are a doctor of psychology, and tell me what that means, or tell me, like, what does that mean in your practice? What people groups do you typically serve? So, I typically work with individuals who are wanting a healthier connection with food and their body, healthier connections with their loved ones wanting assistance in managing depression, anxiety, any major life changes, which right now is happening at a quite a great amount. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of grief and loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been talking about 
the need for grieving in this time because a whole way of life has been lost. Yeah, I'm finding that uh, people are needing permission to grieve right now. Aha, yeah. I bet that's a lot of your job is offering encouragement in that way. It is. I think that's a, a huge part of my work. So I'm trained in building connections with our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors. And I find the majority of my time is spent encouraging people, giving them permission, inviting them to feel their feelings and express those feelings, express those thoughts, and it's in asking them to give themselves permission to do so, too. How do you, I'm curious how you first were inspired to become a psychologist. Is there Was there a moment for you? I think there was a lot of moments. Um, since I was younger, I was very much an observer of people and situations, and I've been kind of just soaking it in, trying to make sense of why people are doing what they're doing. I very much felt a pull to help people, and I loved listening and just being present with people and trying to figure out, well, how can I utilize that? I came across ecology and therapy and go, okay, this feels feels like a place like I need to be, and you know, through all the training, gave me the skills to help guide people to where they ultimately want to be. And through through that, I think too, it has just been a phenomenal feeling for myself. Isn't that how it works, right? Yeah, I totally can relate to that. And you know, well, I guess I should tell listeners how we know each other too. Is that you started coming to Motherheart at this point? I don't know how many years ago, like six years ago. Yeah, that's not right. Yeah, so, and I didn't learn that you were a psychologist for at least like three of those or four of those years. But in addition to practicing yoga, you recently have studied to become a yoga instructor. And so I'm wondering how that has impacted the way that you offer presence with people. Because typically, did you work through talk therapy? Well, primarily talk therapy, and that was great. And then I was finding there were some stuck points for a good amount of my clients that I was working with, and also, too, in my own experience. Like, I was feeling stuck points in talking through some of my stuff, and that's how I came to yoga, and which created just such an openness, you know, in, in feeling my feelings, expressing my emotions to myself and the people in my world. And it felt like a natural progression to start studying yoga and becoming a yoga teacher because when I was working with clients and, and you know, talking about the step points, it's like it felt like something more was needed. So I started integrating more mindfulness practices and breathing techniques and simple yoga movements. And that was mind-blowing how somebody who was experiencing depression, trauma, anxiety that felt like they were hitting a wall, we incorporated some movement and there was so much relief that came in. It was just magical Mm. and instant relief. 
instant present moment um, and is able to connect to themselves and their body in such a different way, which created more room to kind of move through the darkness that they were experiencing to the light. Yeah, and my goal is to incorporate more and more of that, you know, healthy connection with your body, with your mind, with your spirit. Especially yeah. when it comes to working with body image and food issues. You know, I had a friend a while back who she was diagnosed having anorexia nervosa and she was hospitalized and she was just at this point had completely lost her voice and that was her first introduction to yoga was when she was in hospital and the yoga instructor just had them doing had the uh, her group doing some simple movement exercises where they were invited just to gesture what needed to come out or you know and she said she just kept grabbing at her throat and having this gesture of like just wanting to move her voice back out wanting to reclaim her voice and that was just so powerful when she shared that with me and I was thinking in these episodes dedicated to language first I took a look at how language started in humans and I found out that there was thousands upon thousands of years where humans didn't have language and it but they were still communicating non-verbally and through tones and most of all through touch and empathy it just makes me wonder you know first I, I don't think that talking is our first language but then when it comes to what you do oftentimes you're working with people who have various traumas so I'm interested in this connection between trauma and language in particular and I guess maybe a, a good starting point might be to ask you to define what you understand trauma to mean at this time. Trauma to mean any event that we've experienced, and it could be a real or perceived event, situation, that has left a pretty profound emotional impact on us. So trauma, you know, in psychology we call it small T trauma, big T trauma. It can be anything from, you know, experiencing natural disasters, assault, to in a situation where you're asking for something to be met by somebody that you love and care about and it's met with anger and shutting down and how traumatized we can feel in that moment if we're opening ourselves up and we're, we're vulnerable and we're being met with pain and suffering or rejection. So much of my work in you know, the past 12 years and even this week alone too has been so much talking about all these big and small moments that have left impressions on us that are just so deeply painful and maybe leads us to shutting off parts of ourselves, you know, emotionally, language-wise, mentally, and just stay with us for years. Yeah, and you know, one of my previous guests was talking about trauma could also be thought of as too much, too fast, too soon, and now Mm. I'm putting the two explanations together 
because you're talking about even being in a vulnerable state. And then when she was saying too much, too fast, too soon, I could absolutely see how that could take away someone's ability to speak. Could you speak to that <laughs> uh, <laughs> from a psychology perspective as how trauma could take away someone's access to language in general or access to words that could speak to emotion or emotional experience? Yeah, it, it runs so deep. When I think about trauma in, you know, in any realm of our life, particularly early on when we're kids and even younger than that, and we're, we're looking for the people in our world to provide a sense of safety and stability and model you know, what is healthy, good connection. And if we are not having these experiences and we are, you know, attempting to maybe express ourselves verbally or emotionally and it's met with pain, we're learning more and more what's being re- reinforced is it's not okay for me to talk. It's not okay for me to express myself. Mm-hmm. And the more and the more we experience trauma, sometimes the safest thing for us to do is to detach. And the more we're detaching, how much are we tuning into our experience, our emotions, mm-hmm. to be even able to put words to it? Yeah, so potentially this being cut off from verbal language is maybe due to a disassociation that is really common in trauma is a disassociated state or kind of in small and big ways leaving the body. Exactly. Wow. And you touched on something that was kind of my next question too is generational trauma because this is when you said the word modeled that when they're being met with pain or being shut down, getting the message that it's not okay to talk, I suppose that could come from being parented or being modeled these things by someone who also has trauma and the limitations that they've kind of coped with and now are using to model to the child. Is that what generational trauma is? Is passed down inherited trauma? Generational trauma is, is exactly what you're describing. It's, you know, one generation experiencing some sort of trauma and then essentially passing it down or reenacting it with their kids. And those kids then pass it down to their kids. And it cultivates a space of a lot of times just of, of not feeling safe or some cultivated space of anger and this is how we communicate is only through anger and that's how we're learning how to express ourselves is only through anger and there's no room for any other language or expression you know we hear about generational trauma a lot through holocaust survivors mm. and their experiences and how that gets down to the next generation and the next generation, and, you know, you also see it within, you know, abuse dynamics. Your parent was abused by their parents, who was abused by their parents, 
that trauma was passed on, that interaction style was passed on. You know, we have environmental factors, we have genetic factors, and if we don't have opportunities to kind of learn that there's different ways to interact or to heal, we may just continue that pattern. When you say anger, because I was talking about anger earlier on, and what I was referring to was like a spectrum, you know, there's irritation and frustration. But I think when you're saying anger, it's more like higher up in the spectrum of more along the lines of rage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was afraid to have children when I was, when, back when I was considering having children because... I remember when I had one of my first dogs, and I was afraid. My mom, you know, in my household, there was a lot of hitting and a lot of screaming and all kinds of expressions of violence. But I remember I had this dog, and the dog, it was a really barky dog, but I was told that if I let the dog bark too much out back, then we would have to take the dog to the SPCA, and there were different implications there. And so I remember coming home one day, and the dog was out back, and it was barking, and I got the sense that it was barking for a while. And I went outside. I was like 10 years old. And I hit the dog, like, really hard, because I was so afraid of it getting taken away, you know, because that's what I was told. And I remember flashing back to that moment of hitting this dog when I was considering having children. And I thought, there is no way I would ever have kids until I know that that impetus within me that was able to hit that dog, until that's healed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's funny. I didn't remember that until... Now, and that, I guess that leads me to another thing, is that in talking about trauma, especially childhood trauma, there's whole years of my life that I don't remember. And certainly if you don't remember, you can't speak to those, but speaking eventually, the story, telling the story could set you free. And so can you talk a little bit about for one, how trauma can affect memory, and then two, when you're trying to, just like generational trauma can be modeled and passed down, so can, you know, positive psychology, and so I I guess I'm asking, when you work with someone and you're using language, how do you model trauma-informed language to invite someone out of kind of the exile of their silence around trauma. Mm -hmm. I know that's a lot to remember my questioning. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Well, traumatic experiences can negatively impact the way we encode memories and information into our brain that literally, like, Sometimes it just it doesn't record in a sense, or it gets stored so much in the back we don't have access to it. And sometimes we might have more access to 
to physiological responses than we do actual memories. And our capacity to put words to it is pretty limited because there, there's that attachment. You know, the hippocampus is affected, the amygdala, all these really important parts of our brain that help store those memories. Mm-hmm. A compromise, essentially. And, and that's the power of trauma. It can literally negatively impact our brain. And I'm trying to remember the, the train of questions. Yeah, and then the second part was when someone's brain has been negatively affected by trauma and then they don't have real access to voice and a story that would help them contain their experience enough to be expressed. How do you start to talk about that? So first uh, it would be an education on trauma. And I'll use this word kind of loosely, a normalization of the experiences of this is such an adaptive way for us to cope. And it's part of our survival is to disengage. In working with clients, you know, I, I try very much to provide supportive language and giving permission to, to not have the words or to have the words or to simply talk about what it feels like to not have access to that. Mm-hmm. And where do you feel it in your body? How do you feel it impacts your relationship? And start kind of talking about more the stuff around it. And oftentimes when we start providing that safe space to yourself and experiences are validated or the lack of knowledge of experiences are validated that I don't know what I'm feeling. It's okay. You don't have to know what you're feeling. Just validating I don't know it can really help start creating more a, a container of safety and a container of safety where we're able to explore the space a little bit deeper. And for some individuals too, it might be art, it might be yoga, it might be some kind of movement that we are drawing the experience of this expression because we don't have the words for that experience quite yet. And, and and for some individuals, they may never recall the memory of that. And just honoring that, that state. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I suppose memory isn't necessary for actual movement and healing to happen. And you said something really important as the education piece. And I suppose that is the tool. By educating them, you are giving the folks you're working with, options for languaging tools. And it's so funny because when you were offering, when you were talking, I was hearing that restorative yoga phrase that with support comes release. It's just mm-hmm. the constant reassurance that it is okay to feel, it is okay to not have the words there are other ways to speak besides through talking. That's that's a great deal of support, and I su- I'd imagine your clients, in turn, receive a great deal of release. Yeah, definitely the hope and the, the intention, which I find within the, the trauma-informed space and just cultivating that sense of safety is there's a quality of sense of empowerment too because within trauma so many things can be taken away so many things 
begin to start to progress on a sense of empowerment and that could be just saying like no I don't want to talk about it or okay I want to talk about it or I need a break these are such crucial parts of the process and honoring those limits and boundaries is, is, is our moments and evidence that we're, we're taking back our voice we're owning our voice we're owning an experience that maybe in, in those moments we didn't have control over but we can have some sense of control in this space that's so beautiful and that is deeply empowering. And, you know, one thing that is a huge conversation in the yoga world, because yoga is ever-evolving, and it's becoming clear that in the yoga room, and even, you know, from door to floor, as one therapist and beautiful friend of mine says, we need trauma-informed language as yoga teachers, but the only thing that is consistent and across the board is that there's no perfect trauma-informed language, or no trauma-informed yoga. You know, someone might be triggered by the music, I guess. But still, there's a sense of trauma-informed languaging in yoga in that there's an invitation to explore rather than a command performance and it's more of a sense of being with versus doing to. Is that similar in psychology or what what would you say if if it's an easy answer is trauma-informed languaging? I think it's very similar because trauma informed language, like you're saying, is I think it also varies from individual to individual because one word, one sense, one movement, one color could potentially trigger the memory of trauma for somebody. So I think having the awareness of that, you know, we're taught in psychology, basically assume everybody has experienced trauma. And in, in a lot of ways, it's so true, whether it's small trauma or big trauma. And to me, like trauma from language is, is the invitation. It's the respect and the integrity in language. It's like not pushing or not putting something on somebody else. Honoring physical boundaries, too. It's like, you know, trauma from language, even within the form of expressive language, it's like, I'm not going to get into your, your physical space. I'm going to honor, honor that. And I'll ask clients too, okay, can I go here? Is this okay? And again, this might be difficult for you. And again, that's where the asking permission comes up for me a lot of times in therapy too. Yeah, that's really important. And that is also, uh, the word keeps coming up, empowering. And you've used that word a few times, which I really... I love that as being, you know, one of the intentions of the practice. Can you think of a story, a specific story around empowerment or someone, a story of hope where maybe someone started to own their own story again? Yeah. There, there have been so many instances, big and small, that have been pretty... Hey, wonderful. Um, yeah, we can come back to that one. 
Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, because I'm reading right now, um, have you ever heard of the author Glennon Doyle? So I've been, I'm on her third book, and she, I mean, writing is a lot easier than speaking, but she writes about a lot of the people who write to her, and she writes about their stories and and also her own stories of becoming empowered, but it is, you know, I think of the poet Jewel Matheson, she said, it's not the pretty, pretty dance, it's the claw your way back into the belly of the sacred kind of dance. I think of that with empowerment is, you know, it almost makes me respect you more that it's hard to think of just one story because this means you're really kind of in it with people and and that takes time. Yeah, I feel genuinely so honored that people allow me to be in that space with them. Like, it's just such moments of vulnerability. And, you know, just today, talking about experiences of trauma on, on every level and being able now to say for the individual to set boundaries in relationships and say, this is okay, this is not okay, and I will walk away mm. because this is not okay. And to me, that, that's everything, to have that sense of bravery, even in that fear, that empowerment to say, no, I will not engage in this anymore. This is not healthy for me. Yeah, and it is, I, the word no is so deeply empowering in a yes and society. You know, I get it that how important yes and is and I I believe that yes and came from improv comedy circles where that was that was its origin but it it somehow made its way into yoga philosophy that you see in yoga communities no one wants to actually say no it you see it how it works its way into especially as women, I would say, into our our living, working, psychological construct, that to say no is so difficult. I, I met a Christian woman who said that was her Lenten discipline, is to say no, or to at least stop saying yes and sorry. So, so I think that's everything, to be able to say no and to walk away, you know, if that's not honored. Completely, and the, the feelings of uncomfortableness that can come up in saying no, because we feel like you should be saying yes, because the culture could be saying, you know, you should be saying yes to everything, and I've had, you know, many sessions with clients where I'll have them just repeat, just no, the word no. Over and over again, like, how does that feel? And it's like, it feels terrifying to say no to something because if I say no to something, what does it mean? Am I not going to be liked? Are they going to reject me? It's, it's so deep. So important the ability to say no when we need to. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. It doesn't have to be these big words, you know, that's, I, I'm a word nerd, but I really feel like we suffer from 
getting really over-contextualized with our languaging, and it really is the simple words that take back power and simple language. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And I think that is a huge story of hope, is giving someone permission to say no and also practicing it with them. That's beautiful. And so are you, my sister. I'm just so thrilled that you would come on here and in this platform and share and and also let me give you silly games to play. <laughs> and then you were just game to dive right in, not only to silly games, but also into language and trauma. And so thank you so much. 13 thank yous and honey Aww. in my heart. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be on here. Anytime I will dive right on in. I know that you're a very introverted person, and yet I've not ever met an introvert who can hold such deep presence. And I think it just speaks to the way that you really, really do care about everyone you're in presence with. And it comes across so, so profoundly. There have been times when you've been in the room and not even spoken for a while, but you are still working. You're working to make other people feel comfortable and you're holding space. So I just want you to know that that doesn't go unnoticed from me. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Sincerely, that was, thank you. You got it. <laughs> and <laughs> I love you and I hope we can maybe do a social distance hangout here soon because I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, I love you and I'm so ready too. I'm actually <laughs> off for the whole month of June and I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh, so, so if somebody says, is there a doctor in the house? You're going to say, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will say no. <laughs> Well, I'm going to say until next time, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay, friends. We're going to close out with an artist called The Dub Style with a track called Navi Dub. I hope you enjoy. <laughs>